Ooh, there's a lot of people here. I'm Kristen Cook. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, my sobriety date is uh, April 2nd, 2013. Um, I, I surprised myself. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I never thought I would make it past 30 days, you know. Um, uh, it's not my first sobriety date either. Um, my first sobriety date was September 16th, 2006. You know, and uh, it's, I want to say it's not Alcoholics Anonymous that didn't work. It was me that stopped working Alcoholics Anonymous in various ways that I'll get to later. Um, my home group is Serendipity. Uh, we meet Monday and Thursday nights at 7.30, literature studies. Uh, Monday, what, sorry, Saturday at 8 a.m. is a big book study. So... Come out and join us. Uh, we believe in service work, which saved my life. Um, and you'll hear about that a little bit later, too. Um, I grew up here in Greensboro, right? I I'm from Florida, but I grew up here. And uh, grew up in the northwest side of Greensboro. And uh, lived in a place I like to call La La Land. You know, the houses were nice, the yards were kept, the mothers walked around, and, you know, the kids, you know, were taken to skate land and had cookies baked for them. And, you know, I was the kind of kid who was wanting my mom to go to work because she was always up in my business. <laughs> and um, I, I thought if she went to work, she wouldn't have that kind of time. You know, I'd go over to my friends' houses, and their mothers worked, and we could get away with stuff, you know. Um, so there was that, um, you know, I have a brother, uh, he's a year and five days younger than I am, we call us Irish twins, right? And, uh, we got into some trouble together, you know, and, uh, he, he was one of us too. And, uh, you know, I can remember my first alcoholic drink. It was served at the dining room table in this shot glass that has a stem on it, Right. And it was really pretty, and we just got a little bit in there. And it was wine, or it was champagne, and we didn't like the taste of it, but we drank it because we were fancy. And <laughs> we were trying to act grown up. And, uh, you know, it didn't just grab me right then, but um, I can remember when I was 14 years old, 15 years old, sneaking out of the house and going off to go drink with my friends. And... Of course, in the neighborhood that I was in, the next-door neighbor saw me sneaking out and told my mother. <laughs> and I had to explain the next morning. You couldn't get away with anything. Everybody was always up in your business. Um, and so, fast forwarded a little bit. Um, 15 years old, drinking at the Red Roof Inn. I lied. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, it was my first party. And um, I'm drinking at the Red Roof Inn. And there's a bathtub full of alcohol, and I lied to say I was with my friend spending the night, and she lied saying she was with me spending the night, and our mothers didn't like each other, so we knew they weren't going to talk. And lo and behold, um, we're at the Red Reef Inn unsupervised, and I'm 15 years old, and I'm puking over this second story, and I'm throwing up all over these cars, and when you're... You're getting sick, and you're hanging over a balcony. You, I almost fell off, and somebody grabbed me by my pants. 
and, and saved my life. And I hit my head up against the thing, and I could not wait to do it again, right? That's what I chased, you know? I was the kind of alcoholic when I was young. Katie barred the doors, you know? We'd get a bottle, we'd cruise High Point Road, and then we'd go off to some abandoned house and sit on top of it and drink, and we had a good time, and we didn't cause any trouble. We didn't destroy anything. We were just having fun. Um, so when I was 16 years old, um, I was a little wild. I was ready to get out of the house, a little independent. Um, my father found out uh, he had brain cancer, and, and I was a daddy's girl, you know, and uh, he was 42 years old when he found out he had brain cancer. And uh, um, I didn't deal with that well. And uh, I was deciding to make my own family, and I got pregnant young. And my father's very Catholic, and he was going to send me to a convent, and that's where I was going to have that child. <laughs> and um, my mother's, like, on the other school. She's like, here's some money. You go get that taken care of. You know, and they were both working in my best interest. Um, they were just never really on the same page, you know. And, uh, you know, I had that kid. And, um, and I drug her through all that stuff, you know. Uh, my daughter's father and I, were he was my first love. We were together from 15 to 19 years old. And in the end, we were kicked out of the place that we were living in. Um, the landlord didn't like outside issues, left-handed cigarettes being taken place on his property. And he found out that the cops came by on a noise violation, and they found that and uh, they asked us to leave and neither one of our parents would let us live together so we decided to live at Hagenstone Park in January <laughs> and needless to say you know um, alcohol was involved in that and <laughs> and uh, that lasted about two weeks and he was breaking my stuff with the machete and I was throwing his stuff in the fire <laughs> and then that's just the relationships and the life that I lived, you know. Luckily, my daughter was away from that. Um, her paternal grandparents are salt-of-the-earth kind of people. Um, they're amazing. I almost married him for them, you know. I wanted to be a part of that kind of family. And, and my life is about trying to get that Norman Rockwell photo, you know. I want that perfect family. I want my life to be anything other than what it is. You know, see, I grew up in a household that was insanity. I knew, you know, it talks about in the big book, alcoholics' home is the only normal one, right? It's the only one we know. But I knew that my household was not normal. Even though we wore that whole thing on the outside that we're fine, we don't talk about our problems, we don't have problems. Just skip on over that, right? So, uh, my brother... Um, was putting alcohol in my daughter's bottle. She was one years old. Um, my brother's a year and five days younger than me, and, and, and that was not okay. And I went to my daughter's paternal grandparents, and I said, look, my dad had just died. I was 18 years old. This is going on with my daughter. You know, I need help. And, uh, and she took her, and uh, she raised her for three, three and a half years. And I visited, and... Um, um, I had a lot of nevers. I'd never do this. I'd never do that. You know, I had these ideas that I was going to be good, and I would never do all of these things, you know. And um, 
And I was good. But the thing is, I had an illness, and I didn't know that, you know? No one ever told me that you might need help. You know, I acted out in absurd ways, and it was either pushed under the rug or forgiven, you know? Um, and so um, at 19 years old, I'm off. My daughter's over there with her paternal grandparents. I've got a large inheritance that I didn't need. Um, I was going to move to Virginia Beach. Um, I got into some trouble. I started um, getting involved in some outside issues, you know, and uh, some hallucinogens. And I, I'm a coffee distributor now, you know. I distribute things all over the country, all over the world. But back then, I, I was also a distributor, just a different kind. <laughs> And, and, and I only say this because it saved my life. Had I not gotten stopped when I was 20 years old from what I was doing, right, I would have kept on going. Those things that I wasn't going to do yet, I would have done them, you know. But I got the bejesus scared out of me. I was up in Superior Court. I did not go to jail. I've never been in an orange jumpsuit. Not that I didn't belong in it. But... Um, I decided orange was not my color and that I was going to turn to alcohol. It's legal, and as long as I go to work, you can't say anything to me, right? I get my daughter back. I decide that I need to get married, um, and I need to backtrack because something happened. Um, when I was 21 years old, I'm living off of Tate Street. Um, and I am taking sedatives, and I am drinking. I lived the closest, and I was the last one dropped off one night. And I knew a couple of the people, but I didn't know the one that was driving. And he pulled out a gun on Cone Boulevard as he was turning on to 29. And at that exit ramp, I jumped out of the car. And that's not the first car. Well, that was the first car I jumped out of. It's not the last car. Um, but I jumped out of the car, and I saved my life. But it scared the shit out of me. Scared me badly. Sorry. <laughs> and, um, and, and I decided that I needed to change my life. And um, I needed to get married. And so I found this nice Mormon man. Um, his family hated me. <laughs> I, I, I bent all the stuff that they're supposed to do. And, uh, you know, he wasn't practicing. Um, and uh, we ended up getting married. And I married him with my mind. And you ever want to hear uh, God laugh? Tell him your plan, right? And so... Uh, we were married for five years, and um, I stopped drinking, pretty much. I would just, and that's the amazing part. They talk about that line, that invisible line that we cross, you know? And I can remember actually crossing that line. I mean, it wasn't a cognizant thing. It was, thing in, it was more in hindsight. Excuse me. Um... But I remember I became a PTA mom. I started, I worked for a party place in downtown Greensboro, and I rented out uh, moon houses and dance floors and all these things. And so I would bring them to the school. And, you know, they would dress up. My ex-mother-in-law owned the costume department upstairs. And, you know, and I was really involved in my daughter's elementary school, and I was there. You know, and I'm grateful I was able to do that. Um, and... Uh, 28 years old, um, my ex and I were fighting, and he started doing drugs. And see, I left drugs when I was 21, you know, and uh, 
I wasn't going to have that around my kid. And we owned a house. We worked together. I worked for his family. It was kind of mucky, you know? And uh, I left my ex-husband, and my mother went into the hospital and died um, at hospice all within two weeks of each other, right? And I did what I did when my father passed away. I picked up a beer and I just didn't set it down until I came in here, you know, because that's how I dealt with my feelings, right? And anyone who's been here for a few 24 hours knows, you know, drinking at it, drugging at it, whatever you do to escape it doesn't get rid of it. You know, it's only walking through it and sharing it with you guys, you know, with purpose, right? When I get to share with a sponsee, I know how you feel. You know, I wanted to run too. Let me tell you how this worked for me. Not at all, you know, because I still had it. And I've gone through that in recovery, and it's not easy, you know, but it's so worth it. Um, of course, I ended up with another guy. I got to tell you, when I was asked to do my first four-step, I went back through the guys I dated to be able to do it. <laughs> because otherwise, you know, I, I just had no timeline. You know, I just didn't. I was in long-term committed relationships, but I had to go through that in sections, you know, because I had no idea. It all just kind of bled together. Um, so I'm 28 years old, and, and I meet the love of my life, and he's, you know, into football, college football, and I just think I've arrived. And... Um, we get engaged and, you know, my daughter is doing softball and life is good. You know, I've got a job working for some Italians, putting grappa in my coffee at 1030 in the morning. You know, I don't have any consequences. I haven't gotten a DUI yet. Everyone's trying to tell me all that stuff in the big book. Maybe eat something. Maybe drink a little bit of water. Why don't you drink beer? You know, I never had that notion. You know, that, that thought never entered my mind. Um... I thought I was fine as long as I went to work. Like I told you, I picked up alcohol, it was legal, and you couldn't say anything to me as long as I paid my bills and went to work and took care of my kid. And I did those things. I checked the boxes, and I thought I was okay. So one night, I'm at Green Supper Club, and we had been drinking. It was a Friday night, I think, and uh, there's a DUI checkpoint. I'm living in Brown Summit, and there's a DUI checkpoint on 150 right off of the 29 exit. And I blew a .07 and he let me go because I had my daughter in the car. And um, <laughs> I had no reason to leave. I had alcohol. I had everything we needed at the house. You know, we lived on 12 acres. You didn't just get in the car and go, you know. You went to the house and you stayed, you know. You got what you needed on the way. And so um, I don't know why I got in the car. I was in a blackout. I got in the car. Um, I turned right onto 150. There's a schoolyard on the left, and it was like a quarter of a mile from my house. And uh, I went straight. The road curved. I went through a schoolyard. There was four culverts, one on each side of the drive. And um, I clipped the third culvert and flipped my car, broke my driver's seat with my body. I was driving a Buick Riviera, or you'd have a different speaker. Um, I woke up with 20-some staples in my head. I came to, and there were staples in my head, and I saw those shiny shoes. I was like, no, 
going back to sleep. Whatever's going on here, I don't need to be out for. And um, I didn't know how I got there. And I thought somebody else was driving. And, and, and I had no idea. And I never have been looked at with such disdain by anybody in my entire life um, as the way that that doctor looked at me, you know? I still remember it today. It's been 13 years, and I still remember his face, you know? Um, and I didn't want to be there anymore, so I didn't sign myself out. I used their phone, and I called my ex. I said, come get me. And he came and got me, and I just walked out of the hospital. Um, come to find out, there was a gap. About three or four more staples needed to be put in there. And, um, you know, uh, I didn't learn my lesson. There's the thing. Within three days, I'm scared to drink because I didn't plan on driving the car that night, but I drank anyways. And so um, they did an intervention on me, my daughter's paternal grandmother and uh, my ex. Um, they wanted to send me to a treatment center close by. I didn't know that the High Cone Hilton was where it was. And it was very close to where I lived. Um, and so I have a control thing, and I didn't want to let go of control. I had a job, I have a daughter, I have a fiancé, and I had all the excuses, and really, I just wanted to drink. Um, but I started going to AA, and uh, I didn't, since I didn't go to AA school, you know, if you're looking for a sponsor and you're nervous about going to ask them, you know, you can just ask how to get a sponsor in a meeting. Okay, and everybody's going to come up to you, <laughs> and they're going to offer you numbers. You know, um, I didn't know that. I asked about it because you guys kept talking about it, and uh, I was given numbers, and people said things, and someone asked me if I'd roll a marble uphill with my nose, and I said, I looked at her, and I was like, I wouldn't do that drunk. What are you talking about? What I now know she was talking about was was I willing to go to any lengths? You know. Um, so, I, uh, I, I tried some of that controlled drinking that they talk about in the book, and, uh, you, you heard earlier, um, that was August 12th, that accident of 2006, September 16th, 2006 was my first sobriety date, it didn't last very long, that experimenting controlled drinking, um, I woke up out of a blackout at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, I stayed at my friend's house so I would be safe, and um, I woke up to that pitiful and comprehensible demoralization that we talk about. You know, I now knew what that meant, and I went to this woman that I had gotten a sponsor, and, and I said, look, this is what happened, and she said, you're not done yet. Here's 20 bucks. Well, that was my first sober resentment, um, <laughs> and I was like, I will show you, and, uh, and, and I stayed sober for almost five years, you know. And uh, I wasn't asked to do things, you know. They, uh, they told me. We have a New Year's Eve party that we set up for. And some of the guys and people from that group that were doing that said, you know, what can you do? And they found out what I could do, and they put me to work. They didn't ask me if I wanted to. They just said, go do that, you know. And they talked about 90 and 90, you know. And, and what happened for me in there was I stopped going to meetings because I had to. And I started going to meetings because I felt safe for that hour. See, I went right after work. Uh, Back to Reality was one of my first home groups. 
and, and it was at six o'clock, so immediately after work, I would stop in there and I would get a meeting. And then I started loving AA. I started loving how I felt in AA. I started loving watching the people in AA get sober, right? Because that to me is a miracle, you know? I love watching babies and puppies and, you know, sunrises and sunsets and mountains and nature. People getting sober is right up there up top with that stuff, you know? It brings me joy, you know? Um, so I did what you guys said. I sponsored people. I was sponsored, uh, worked the steps. Um, and uh, I even at that first year of sobriety, I told my ex I couldn't be with him anymore because I would get drunk. He was my best drinking buddy, right? And I loved him, but I couldn't be with him anymore. And so at four years sober, I know now. And I have some self-knowledge. And uh, he comes back around, and we end up getting back together. And, and, you know, you let something go, and it comes back to you. It's meant to be. <laughs> I can spin it, right? That's why I need a sponsor. Um, <laughs> and a home group, you know, friends to tell me the truth, right? Um, but I don't think anyone could have told me anything. I needed to go through that myself. We moved to Carrie. And, um, and life happens, you know, um, I moved to Cary in February, 2011. I didn't get a home group or, or anything because they did it wrong in Cary. They did. You guys in Greensboro did it right. And they gave different, different chips for different months and all this stuff was different, right? Um, I'm going to tell you they did it right in Cary. When you need it bad enough, anywhere in the world, they do it right, right? But I was just... Again, looking at the differences. I stopped looking for the commonalities, you know? And uh, so that was February. In March of 2011, my daughter goes into the hospital. She's in ICU. Um, this is my baby. She's 17 years old, and uh, she's good, you know? She, she is the best thing I've ever done, you know? She is all good. And, and she gets sick, and I'm not okay. And... Uh, I was angry at God. See, I thought I'd gotten to a place with God where I was good. You know, forgiveness of a God of my misunderstanding, right? And I had done this work. But my kid gets sick, and I'm straight off to the races again. That's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And I wanted to physically punch God. I was like, you fix her, right? I mean, this is just where I'm at. This is not okay. I'm sober, and my kid is sick, and this is not acceptable. And she's in ICU. And uh, I had a sponsor, um, one that we kind of alluded to earlier, uh, Katie, and I shared the same sponsor for a little bit at different times. And uh, she's got this license plate that says, yay, God, on the back of it, right? And I'm going through this stuff, and the people at the TAC and carry, this guy is saying, you get to, you get to. I'm like, you don't understand, I have to. You know, I have to do this, and I have to do this, and my kid is sick, and I'm trying to stay sober, and I'm sharing it in a meeting, and you guys are looking at me with compassion. And I think it's, you're looking at me like I was dropped on my head, you know? I have this disease in my mind, right, that's working overtime, and unless I'm sharing it, it just festers, and it grows, and, and it got really dark for me. And, and I'm going to tell you, it wasn't a conscious decision to go out there and drink and blow away my almost five years of sobriety. It was not. It was one of those all of a sudden, I'm driving in my car, and, and, and I go to the store, and I go get it. It's not 
the alcohol that was in the house, because my ex had liquor in the house. That wasn't the thought that hit my mind. It was suddenly, I'm going to go to the store, I'm going to change how I feel, because that's why I drank, because I wanted to change how I felt. And um, I didn't realize that that stopped working for me when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I drank for one day. I was pissed off because if you were going through what I was going through, you would drink too. And so um, I stayed angry for two years. And um, they call it a premeditated uh, relapse, right? Whatever they call it, it is what it is. I went out for three weeks and I drank how I wanted to drink and I drank all the stuff. And, and, and here's the thing. And this is, the, this is where I wanted to die. Is it didn't change how I felt. Right? And so if I can't change how I'm feeling through drinking and for me, I had to be beaten into a state of reasonableness, you know, um, I hadn't lost anything when I came here the first time. Um, that last time that I went out uh, for three weeks, I told my ex and he said, I can't do this anymore. And my daughter went to go live with her father. And I moved in to a four-bedroom duplex with three other women. And uh, pitiful and comprehensible. Again, how did I get here? You know, this wasn't on the plan. I didn't have a job. I was unemployable. Luckily, I got to take care of my daughter during that time, and I didn't need to work. But working was a part of my identity, just like coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, of being of service, right? Because if I have too much time in my hands, it's not good, right? It just isn't. And so um, that is where I found the willingness, right? I lost everything in those three weeks. And... Um, I started making amends, and I started working with another lady who's an attorney, and I could not evade her, and she was the best. She left me no loopholes, because I'm really good at loopholes. And so um, here's the thing. When you're willing, you don't look for loopholes. You want to get better. And so I didn't have a job. I hadn't worked in three years. And uh, she tells me to go and uh, make an amends to that former employer back here in Greensboro. And I do. And, uh, well, let me back up. I wrote a letter. She went through it. She marked through what I should make an amends for and what I shouldn't because we do not grovel, right? Because my motive in groveling was to get her to forgive me, right? I thought if I groveled enough, she's an Italian lady, and I thought if I groveled enough, she'd forgive me. The sponsor said we do not grovel, and she marked it through, and she, and she said you will say this. And so one morning after a Saturday morning meeting, she's like, are you ready to call her? I'm like, she's not going to answer. I have a new number. If she answers, she's going to hang up on me. I'm going to tell you, folks, she answered. She didn't hang up on me. And um, she let me meet. I, I read my amends to her on the phone because she didn't want to see me. She wouldn't speak to me for three years. And um, after I read my amends to her over the phone, um, I asked her if I could take her to lunch and talk to her in person. And I did. And uh, she told me my favorite words. I still remember them to this day. It wasn't your fault. It was your ex's fault. <laughs> I'm going to 
to tell you, these little Dimitov spoons are tiny, right? I could have eaten that up with a Dimitov spoon, but I said, no, I'm responsible for my actions. And the way that I left you, even though my circumstances were bad, which I didn't explain, but they were, I had no right to leave the way that I did, right? And so I will tell you guys that I applied to three jobs, and I got two of the three jobs, and they were part-time, and I was going to school, and one, I should not have even been lit in the building. Not only did I not have the educational requirement, I had an associate's at the time in accounting, um, and they required a bachelor's at minimum, and um, plus that little pesky thing that I did back when I was 20 years old. Um, they shouldn't have let me in the building, and I'm working for a pharmaceutical company doing all of their billing, and I'm billing $2 million a month by myself, and, and, and it was amazing, you know? Um, I, I would have never dreamt that, and all I did was do the footwork. I actually took both of those part-time jobs, and between both of those part-time jobs, AA, and school, and being a mom, and being able to sleep, um, <laughs> I had to let one of them go. And my sponsor had to pull out a piece of paper and say, what are you doing on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? Okay, which meetings are you going to? When are you getting together with your sponsees? You know, we put that all on paper. Because I still think today I can do it all. Right? And I don't stop. And it takes someone to tell me I need to stop. You know, and... and, and and be present in my life, you know? Um, so after three years, um, I got laid off. Um, there was three layoffs. The third one got me, you know? And they gave me a very nice and generous severance. Um, but I had an idea. I had an idea of a job that I wanted, and I wanted to be in pharmaceuticals because that's where the money's at, right? And so um, I applied to those types of jobs. I tell anybody that's looking for work to apply to everything because you don't know where you're supposed to be. You know, I limited myself. Um, <clears throat> but I didn't get any jobs that I was looking for. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do? You know, and it was about six months that I hadn't worked. And in August, this boss from Greensboro, she calls me up. She says, can I take you out for brunch? And so we meet up and we go out for brunch. And she offers me a job. And I, with my ego, said, I need a job in pharmaceuticals. I don't want to get back to the company I was with seven years before. That's going backwards. And then my sponsor said, um, it's a job. Maybe that's where you're supposed to be. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm fully self-supporting. Maybe that is where I'm supposed to be. And so... Um, you know, God does for me what I can't do for myself. Um, I have a loving higher power, and, and, and it's powerful. You know, um, I call it God because when I was pissed off and wanted to punch God, it was God I wanted to punch. You know, so for me, it's really simple to say, you know, you can't not believe in something that you're mad at, right? I think I'm saying that backwards, but you guys get what I'm saying. <laughs> you can't be mad at something you don't believe in. That's what I'm trying to say. And so um, I do have a loving higher power, you know, um, that wants good things for me. And, and I've got to experience that. Um, another quick amends, because I love the amends. Um, 
I don't know about you guys, but my mother and I had a pretty rocky relationship, you know, and, and I was angry at her for a lot of years. And she was the main parent. My father traveled, yet he sat on a pedestal. But I was angry at my mom. And uh, I came to find out that I have these two half-sisters from my mom. And we didn't know about it our whole lives. And um, I was an adult. My father had passed away before we found out. And uh, these two sisters contact me. They're 10 and 11 years older than I am. And uh, they contact me after my mother passed away. And I'm in my last year of drinking before I come to AA. And I can't hear what they've got to say. And I'm just angry. I'm so angry at my mom, and I write letters because, you know, someone's passed away. They tell you to write letters, so I wrote letters, and I was just angry. I loved my mom, but I was mad at her. I thought I got a short, you know, I thought I got a shorthand. I thought she dealt me like she wasn't what I thought she should be, which was perfect, right? Because we all think our parents should be perfect, right? Was I perfect, you know? So... I'm uh, working this immense, and, and it's with my mom, and my brother's been locked up for about a decade, and so I couldn't take her ashes. Well, he gets out, and uh, I ask him if he wants to take our mom's ashes to the beach and spread her ashes, and these sisters were, on my, were not on my immense list because I'd only spoken with them once. I've never met them, and all of a sudden, I get this this sense that I need to contact them and I need to reach out. And I reached out to them and I offered them to come with us to go do spread our mother's ashes. And we share stories and they ask for pictures and I send pictures and I send a little letter and uh, what I gathered in that, and there's two things I got from this, what I gathered in that was um, that my mom held those secrets her whole life. It wasn't her fault. You know, um, she, she had some extenuating circumstances and she had no help. And, and she didn't have a choice, but she had to give those children up and it was a different time. And um, she had to carry those secrets all those years. And what it must have been like for her to live with that. You know, it broke my heart and I found compassion and I forgave her. And something miraculous happened as I was forgiven. You know, we were good. Um, my brother and I hadn't spent any time together. He had been locked up for 10 years. We went to the beach together. And uh, all those walls that we built up, I was able to see that I was never going to get that apology from him. You know, I was angry with him because he did X, Y, and Z. But what I realized is that he wasn't capable to acknowledge those things in the past. And I'm the one that's hanging on to them. Who's the one in wrong? I am. I'm the one that won't let it go. You know, I'm the one who's waiting for something to happen from somebody who is incapable to give it to me. And what happened was I gained a brother. I no longer judged him. He was good. How can I help him? Because he's sick and suffering. And uh, uh, you know, it all comes for a circle. On uh, May 3rd of last year, I get a knock on the door, and I had just gotten home. I had met with my sponsor, 
and I had just gotten through telling her how my brother and I got this relationship again. And um, we talked a couple times a month. Um, and I get a knock on the door, and it's Greensboro police officer. And I hadn't been there but two months, where I just moved back to Greensboro. And, um, and, and he says, I'm sorry to tell you this, ma'am, uh, but your brother, Willie Cook, he killed himself. And um, I, I just couldn't believe it. I wanted to know all these answers that are unanswerable, right? All I do know is that it's this disease. It's what happens to us. And what broke my heart the most is I know how that feels. See, I wanted to die all those years ago when my daughter was sick. What I would have missed was the miracle that she's in remission now, right? I would have missed that. I sell myself short. Life happens, you know. But because of that, and my sponsor today, she tells me to look at what happened to my brother. And, and she says, look what he did for you. Because he pushed me in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. At five years sober, that's where I was again, where I went out last time. Right? And at five years sober, we start to get on the edge of things, right? We get busy in our lives. And we start to get on the edge and we fall off. And what happened with that? was I decided that I needed a sponsor that was going to call me on my stuff, that, that I was going to meet with on a regular basis, that has healed from trauma. Yeah. I mean, that's what we do, right? And, and she showed me through her experience um, that I can be a lady of dignity and grace. They don't have to be who I was, you know? And uh, I'm just grateful for you guys. Um, thank you so much.